you may remain standing for the reading, which is from Romans chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. This is the word of the Lord to us today. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I won't make you stand for the whole sermon. (laughs) Lord Jesus, you are the author of hope. And today we you give us reason to hope because you're raised from the dead. So Lord, we pray that you would open your word to us this morning and teach us from it so that we could be people of hope and spread your hope to a world that desperately needs to hear it. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. When I was a pastor at Menlo Park Presbyterian Church, my nickname there was Eeyore. Yeah, it wasn't very complimentary. Because at times, as I've told you, I can be a little bit of a pessimistic person. Now, for those of you who don't know who Eeyore is, Eeyore is the perpetually depressed donkey in Winnie the Pooh. He lives in a very gloomy and sad place. He talks in low, somber tones, and he's always sure that it's going to rain or that no one's going to come to his birthday party. When I read that description of Eeyore to my wife, she just smiled and she said, yeah, that's you. (laughs) My excuse is that I come by it naturally. My mother was an Eeyore and my father was an enabler. (laughs) My, My sister is an Eeyore. Her name is Dee. So we call her O.D. of Little Faith. (laughs) And I have inherited all of those pessimistic qualities. Nobody can snatch defeat out of the jaws of victory like me. But I have a feeling that I'm not alone. As a culture, it seems to me we are losing the virtue of hope. Every year in our country, the the number of cases of depression dramatically rises. And before I finish this sentence, someone in this country will have attempted suicide. And all of that while we live in the most affluent, healthy, productive society ever. Never in history have so many people had so much for so long and been so depressed about it. And it's true in our personal lives as well. We often lose hope. We worry about the economy, about crime, about tensions in our world. We feel trapped in our jobs and wonder if we're ever going to feel fulfilled vocationally. Or we don't have a job and we wonder if we're ever going to get one. Or or our relationships fall apart or our health goes bad. And all of that can rob us of the virtue of hope. But Easter is all about hope. The fact that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead is the single most hopeful event in all of history. So this morning I want to ask this question. What are the qualities of a godly hope that can keep us hopeful even when times get tough? In the verse we just read, Paul says this, We were saved in hope. But hope that is seen is not hope at all. What does that mean? It's kind of a confusing 
statement, you know, hope that is seen is no hope at all. It sounds kind of zen-like. What does it mean? Well, I think Paul's getting at a couple of important things about what hope is. And the first is this. Our hopes need to be bigger than the things that we can see. Or for that matter, that we can touch or taste or feel. Because if we're putting our hope in the things that we can see, then we're going to be disappointed because those things don't last. Most of the things that I hope for are things that are visible, they're tangible. I, I hope I'm successful in my job. I, I hope for recognition and praise. I hope for enjoyment and good times. Now all of those things are fine things to hope for. There's nothing wrong with them. But the problem is that if we put all our hopes in those things, finally they will disappoint us because they don't last. What is seen, money, success, health, good times, none of that lasts. I first learned this lesson when I was nine years old. When I was nine, the thing I hoped for more than anything else in the world was a chemistry set. My best friend had a chemistry set, and I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. I mean, he made a volcano once. That was amazing. He made some stinky stuff, and he put it in his sister's room. I thought that was just great. <laughs> and all the kids wanted to go to his house after school because he had the chemistry set, and I didn't, which meant in the world of pre-adolescent boydom, I couldn't compete. I was not the alpha male. So I hoped that my parents would get me a chemistry set. If only I had a chemistry set then, I'd never be bored again. Everybody would like me. Life would be perfect. And my hopes came true. I got one. But my joy didn't last. In about two weeks, I was already bored with the thing. And then to top it off, my best friend got a swimming pool, which completely trumped my chemistry set. <laughs> I was out again. And that's when I first learned this lesson, that the thing I could see, the visible, tangible thing I hoped for, disappointed me because it was not eternal. And the problem was that even though the chemistry set wasn't eternal, deep down my longings really were. Deep down what I really wanted wasn't a chemistry set, but a sense that life was exciting and that it mattered. Deep down what I really wanted wasn't a chemistry set, but, but a sense of belonging to a community. Do you ever do something similar? You hope for something you can see and you're just sure it's going to satisfy you. If only you can get it and then you get it and it doesn't. The new job, the new house, the new car, whatever, it doesn't last. And we misplace our hopes when we hope for only what we can see. When deep down, what we really want, what we really need, are the things we can't see, the things that last. The Bible says God has set eternity in our hearts. And what that means is that deep down, what we really long for is connection to the eternal God. So instead of just hoping for success in career, we can hope for significance, that we make a difference that lasts. Instead of hoping for companionship, we can hope for community. Community that lasts beyond the grave and, and community as a place where we're not just kept company, but, but where we help each other become everything we were intended to be in Jesus Christ. And instead of, of hoping just that I achieve great things, I can hope that I become more like Jesus because character lasts forever. You see, what Paul is saying is that because Jesus has been raised from the dead, we are destined for eternity if we know him. And so all our hopes need to be eternal as well. We hope for what we cannot see because deep down, that's what we long for anyway. The second reason I think Paul tells us to hope for what we can't see is because hope happens even in places that don't look very hopeful to the human eye. If we're honest, a lot of what we see doesn't look very hopeful. 
We look at our world with its wars and its crime and its pollution, and it doesn't look very, very hopeful. Or sometimes we see our lives, and they're chock full of loneliness or boredom or sin, and they don't look very hopeful. And that's why I'm glad I'm a Christian, because Christian hope takes account of the reality of how bleak life can sometimes be. Look at the symbol of our faith, the cross. It's an instrument of execution. It'd be like having an electric chair or a noose hanging up in our churches as a symbol of our faith. But in a strange way, that's what gives me hope, because it tells me that my God doesn't offer me trite cliches to painful problems. My God doesn't sugarcoat the reality of suffering and pain in our world. What the cross shows me is that he understands how painful life can be. He understands because he's been there. Do we suffer? So did he. Do we die? So did he. Do we face hard times? So did he. Are we lonely? So is he. My hope is built on nothing less than the God who did not have to suffered for me. So that when I suffer, he could know what that's like. And he could be with me in that suffering. But the good news is he didn't just suffer, he also transformed suffering, and that's what we celebrate today. The most powerful moment in all of history, in human history, is the one we celebrate this morning, when those women first went to the tomb where Jesus was buried, expecting to see what? <laughs> expecting to see a corpse. Expecting to see reminders of the death of Jesus the suffering he endured on the cross, the apparent failure of his ministry, the shame of being executed as a criminal. Death, suffering, failure, shame, that's what they expected to see. But what did they see instead? Nothing. The tomb was empty. Death wasn't there. Suffering wasn't there. Failure wasn't there. Shame wasn't there. That's a very powerful nothing that was in that tomb, don't you think? Their hope was in what they could not see that morning. And that's what the res resurrection means to us. Death, suffering, failure, shame. They've been conquered. He's overcome them. And it happened in a tomb, in a dark place, in a place of death. <clears throat> you see, because of the resurrection of Jesus, the two most hopeful places in all of history is a graveyard and an execution site. We have a Savior who died, who went all the way into the heart of darkness, who went dead center into the valley of the shadow of death and came out the other side. And if God can turn a cross in a graveyard into something hopeful, what can he do with your life or with mine? What are the crosses in your life right now? What are the places of death and suffering and failure and shame? Whether you can see it right now or not, those places are going to become symbols of hope for you if you know Jesus. Because hope happens even in the darkest places, because if it can't happen there, what good is it? There is no corpse so dead that God can't raise it up again, whether we can see that or not. Which brings me to my last point. I think the third reason that Paul tells us to hope for what we do not see is that hope is all around us, even when we can't see it. Let me tell you a story about hope. Eleven years ago, my first wife found someone else that she liked better and left me for him. It was like having emotional vivisection. It was, it was the most painful thing that's ever happened to me. And after a long period of trying to get her to come back, she divorced me and I reluctantly moved to California to finish a PhD. My first night at Stanford, I was in the middle of my divorce. I was feeling lonely. I moved into graduate student housing and I met my roommate. 
The first thing he said to me was, well, what do you study? And I said, oh, I'm studying English literature. And he said, literature? What a stupid thing to study. And I remember thinking, great. I used to live with a beautiful woman, and now I live with you. This is awesome. I was 30 years old. I was losing my hair. I was back to living with roommates, just like in college. And all I could think was, I've come a long way, baby. So I tried to cook some dinner, but I didn't know how, and I ended up cutting my finger on a can of soup. This story just gets more and more pathetic as it goes. I remember staring at my cut finger thinking, this is a metaphor for my life. I'm an English major, so I do metaphors. That's what I do. The whole thing depressed me, and it's probably depressing you. So I got in the car, and I started driving up and down one of the main roads near Stanford. And about every 45 minutes, I would stop at a phone booth to call my ex-wife. I don't know why. A, a familiar voice, a last-ditch effort to get her to come back, I don't know. But every time I called, she wasn't there. She was out with the guy that she left me for. And I did this for hours, driving around, stopping at phone booths every 45 minutes. And finally, her roommate just got sick of it, and she said, Stop calling. She's not here. She's left you. Deal with it. So I, I drove around some more. By this time, I was crying. I was yelling at God because I felt like he'd abandoned me. I was completely lost. It was my first night in California. I didn't know where I was. I got off in some side streets. Finally, I stopped at one last phone booth at 1 in the morning. And I called my parents, hoping that they could help me. And it turned out they didn't help much. I mean, they said some mean things about my ex-wife. That was kind of helpful, but <laughs> not enough. So I finished the conversation, and I hung up the phone, and I went home, and I tried to sleep it off. It was the worst night of my life. Now, that's a depressing story. And this is a sermon about hope, and you're probably wondering, where's the hope? Give me something to hang on to here. Well, here's the ironic twist. The last phone booth I called from at 1 in the morning was right outside Menlo Park Presbyterian Church, the church that five years later where I would become a pastor the church I just came from to be here. I was 30 yards from the pulpit I was going to anchor. I was right around the corner from where my office was going to be. I was in the middle of the place where I was going to meet and make so many friends, where my faith in God was going to be renewed, where I'd be able to discover and use my gifts. I was in the place that was going to play such an important role in bringing me and Christina together, my wonderful wife who helped me heal from all that pain. I was in the place that would train me to do ministry so that I could come here and have the joy of serving you. All things I could not see at the time. And things that I couldn't even have imagined if you'd asked me. I mean, there I was, crying in the phone booth, lost, having no idea where I was. But God knew. I was standing in the middle of hope. And just because I couldn't see it didn't mean it wasn't there. And when I was yelling at God, angry because I felt like he'd abandoned me, God was right there saying, oh, Scott, if you could only see what I see, if you could only see the next ten years. And all I wanted that night was just to get a phone call through to my ex-wife, something I could see, something I could hang on to. But my hope was in what I could not see, because God wanted so much more for me that night than I wanted for myself. And at the time, that phone booth looked like nothing but a bleak, dark place. It looked like a tomb. But after that, every time I'd pass it, I'd think to myself, man, what God can do. And it became a symbol of hope. 
I know that today there are probably a lot of people here who feel hopeless about something. Hopeless about a marriage, hopeless about a job, hopeless about your own brokenness, hopeless about a family problem or a relationship problem or a health problem. At one point or another, all of us feel hopeless about something. But hope is all around us, even if we can't see it. And it happens even in the darkest places. And that's what we celebrate today. That's what Easter is all about. Because you see, I believe, and I hope that you believe, that everything we have to fear, that all the sins we've sinned and all the sins that have been sinned against us, that all the failures we failed and all the ways we failed other people, that all the shame we feel and that all the shame we caused, that all of those things were driven into the hands of a righteous man by a brutal Roman nail. And I believe and I hope that you believe that he took those things to the grave with him, but that when he rose up, he left them there where they belong and he rose up and empty-handed. And I believe and I hope that you believe that what that means is that there is now nothing that can ever separate us from God's love. Not trouble, not hardship, not danger, not death, not peril, persecution, famine, nakedness, or the sword. We may experience all of those things. But what the resurrection of Jesus means is that they cannot win. They have no say. They have no power. They cannot stop us because God can always bring life out of death. And there is now nothing. Nothing in our past. Nothing in our present. Nothing in our future. There is nothing in heaven. There is nothing on earth. There is nothing even in hell itself. There is nothing, no thing, that can ever sever you or ever sever me from the love we have in Jesus Christ our Lord because he is risen. He is risen indeed. And what that means is good news. Awful good news. And what that means is that for those of us who know Jesus, we are always standing in the middle of hope because we're always standing in the middle of life with him. Lord Jesus, that is such good news. Thank you for that. Thank you for the hope that you bring us. Lord, for those who might not know you today, I'd ask that you would become so real to them that they would embrace you as their Savior and their Lord. And Lord, for those of us who do know you, I ask that you would open our hearts to this amazing truth. Help us to give our whole lives to you so that we can know the hope and the joy that you came to give us. Lord, you alone are the source of hope. You alone are God. And we give our lives to you, for you are risen. You are risen indeed. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.